to my favorite psalm. And I'll turn to your favorite if you'll tell me what it is sometime. Psalm 45. Psalm 45. Last Sunday, we read and studied Psalm 22, which I said could not have a greater psalm because it's the first person testimony of Jesus Christ of what it was like to hang on the cross of Calvary and have not only wicked Jews and Romans persecuting him, but to have the principalities and powers of heavenly places persecuting him in his spirit and soul. And we read of his torment in Psalm 22. We shall not try to exceed that psalm with this one. But this one, brethren, goes beyond the sufferings of Christ to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And I want you to stand with me as we read together Psalm 45. My heart is indicting a good matter. I speak of the things which I have made touching the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. Thou art fairer than the children of men. Grace is poured into thy lips. Therefore God hath blessed thee forever. Gird thy sword upon thy thigh, O most mighty, with thy glory and thy majesty. And in thy majesty ride prosperously because of truth and meekness and righteousness. And thy right hand shall teach thee terrible things. Thine arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies, whereby the people fall under thee. Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of thy kingdom is a right scepter. Thou lovest righteousness and hatest wickedness. Therefore, God, thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. All thy garments smell of myrrh and aloes and cassia out of the ivory palaces, whereby they have made thee glad. King's daughters were among thy honorable women. Upon thy right hand did stand the queen in gold of Ophir. Hearken, O daughter, and consider, and incline thine ear. Forget also thine own people and thy father's house. So shall the king greatly desire thy beauty, for he is thy Lord, and worship thou him. And the daughter of Tyre shall be there with a gift. Even the rich among the people shall entreat thy favor. The king's daughter is all glorious within. Her clothing is of wrought gold. She shall be brought unto the king in raiment of needlework. The virgins, her companions that follow her, shall be brought unto thee. With gladness and rejoicing shall they be brought. They shall enter into the king's palace. Instead of thy fathers shall be thy children, whom thou mayest make princes in all the earth. I will make thy name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore shall the people praise thee forever and ever. Amen. You may be seated. My brethren, you spent six and a half years, five days a week, for 18 years, 22 years, 26 years, depending on 13 years, 18 years, or 20 years, depending on how much 
education you received having to read short stories written by men. And most of you didn't fall asleep while you were in class. And we're in a class together as the Assembly of the Lord's Saints. Psalm 45, a short story, a poetic song, a nuptial song of marriage between Jesus Christ and his church. The first verse is a verse of introduction describing the inspiration that causes men to write the word of God. My heart is dictating is what the word indict means. My heart is indicting a good matter. My heart is dictating a good matter. They can make fun of us and call us that we're guilty of mechanical dictation when it comes to the doctrine of inspiration. We'll say, so be it. Turn to Psalm 45, 1 and look at it. The words come from God and he puts them in their hearts and those words come to the tongue and they come to the pen. My tongue or pen. How do you want me? Do you want me to say these words or write them? My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. This is the doctrine of inspiration. The last verse is the conclusion where the psalmist says, I will make thy name to be remembered in all generations. And that's what I'm trying to do this morning, to make the name of the Lord remembered in all generations. And we have several generations here. And my purpose is this morning that therefore, as a result of my effort to cause you to remember his name and his love for us, that the people will praise him forever and ever. That's the purpose of this psalm. In between are two descriptions. The first one, verses 2 through 7, of the Lord as our conquering prince and God himself. Verses 2 through 7. I'll come back to these in a moment. And verses 8 through 16, our description of the Lord Jesus Christ as the great husband. There is a huge change between verses 7 and 8. In 7, he is God with a sword upon his thigh. In verse 8, he is in clothes for the marriage bed. And the, and the bride is brought to him with all of her virgin companions. And they're encouraging her on the way of what a glorious night it is going to be of the consummation of Christ's love for his church. I want to remind you that it says in the Ephesians chapter 5, where the apostle has his longest discourse on marriage, he gets to the end and he says, this is a great mystery And there is no mystery about our marriages. We wish there was more mystery sometimes. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. There is a mystery that I cannot describe to you and I will not attempt to, but we shall be united to him in a way that is so complete in heaven that it says of us that we're all of one. That is more than just one in agreement. We will have the full, we are the fullness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we will complete and perfect him, not by our contribution, but by his glorious salvation of us. May the Lord bless us to fully appreciate what is coming. We are racing toward physical, the end of our physical lives. May we look with anticipation and joy and excitement at the commencement, which is the beginning of our spiritual lives in heaven in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ. Psalm 45 I hope that after today you'll love it a little bit more. We'll sing it tonight as our, as our manner is, but I hope that we've read it now and that you understood in general what it's describing, and I want to show you specifically a few blessings from it in a few minutes. But now I want us to turn to a couple of hymns. Turn back with me, if you would, to Psalm 45. Psalm 45. 
you are loved with an everlasting love. Every man wants to be loved. But we are loved with the everlasting love of the Lord Jesus Christ, which knows no height or depth or width or length. Amen. And it was the prayer of the Apostle Paul that the Ephesian saints might come by his spirit to know more of those infinite dimensions of the love of Christ. And this morning I want to share with you, and I will not be long, I want to share with you Psalm 45. The Apostle Paul said, I determined not to know anything among you, save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I have determined again this morning that I want to give you Jesus Christ and Him crucified for the redemption of your soul and to win you to Himself as His bride. Amen. The Apostle Paul said, God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. Amen. So we shouldn't want to glory in anything else but what Paul wanted to glory in, and that is what Jesus Christ did for us. How much do you love Jesus Christ? It's the concern of my soul for my soul. And it's the concern of my soul for every one of you. And anyone that would ever hear me. That if I accomplish anything in my life, it might be to promote the love of Christ. And yet I cannot give you that love. It must be by His Holy Spirit Amen. upon your hearts. And I pray that you'll give me enough attention for a few minutes, that we can look at Psalm 45 and that you can see how much He loved us and what is coming in our lives. Do you meditate? I asked you this last Lord's Day. Do you meditate in the Psalms? Do you ever go into the Psalms for pleasure? I want to show you Psalm 45 for pleasure this morning. Do you meditate in the Messianic Psalms, the ones that speak directly about Him? You know, when we go to Psalm 45, we may have to ask the question that the Ethiopian eunuch asked in that chariot of his. As he read in the prophet Isaiah, and Philip jumped up and said, Understandest thou what thou readest? And Philip, the eunuch said, How can I except some man should guide me? What speaketh, who's speaking here? Of whom speaketh the prophet? Of himself or of another? And so when we come to Psalm 45, we need to ask that question. Is the psalmist speaking of himself or of another? And he is indeed speaking of another, of the Lord Jesus Christ. I showed you Psalm 45, verse 1 is an introduction, the basis of the inspiration for this psalm and its description as good matter. If you don't like Psalm 45, then the problem is with your taste. Right. Because it says it's good matter. Isn't it wonderful to be able to preach a book that I can tell you that if you don't like it, the problem's with you and not with the book? Right. Who else gets up? Who else is able to teach from any other book except the Word of God like that? I want your taste to love this good matter that is in Psalm 45. The first verse is an introduction. The last verse is a conclusion of what the psalmist is going to do because of what God inspired him to write in verses 2 through 16. And in 2 through 16, we have the first section, 2 through 7. I'm repeating myself for your learning. Jesus Christ as conquering Lord and God. And verses 8 through 16, Jesus Christ as the lover of our souls. You know, we have a hymn in our books, number 120, Jesus, lover 
of my soul. And this is a, we're going to see it here in this Psalm 45. This psalm is about our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you need to wonder about that when you get to verse 2 and you have the first words given? Thou art fairer than the children of men. That isn't Solomon. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the fairest of 10,000 to our souls. When you come down to verse 6 and it says, Thy throne, O God. Solomon was never addressed as God. This is our Lord Jesus Christ and one of our favorite proofs of his deity. Jesus Christ is God. This is about the Lord Jesus Christ. This cannot be about Solomon. Solomon was not a mighty warrior. He didn't gird a sword upon his thigh and go anywhere prosperously. Militarily. The Lord didn't give him any enemies. The Lord gave him a reign of peace and prosperity so that he could just spend money to see if he could find a purpose for living under the sun. This is not about Solomon. And when we come down to verses 16, about five, we're going to have this, this king here and his bride are going to have children instead of fathers, and they're going to make them princes in all the earth. That is talking about the universal dominion of our Lord Jesus, not the limited dominion of King Solomon. And that 17th verse has nothing to do with Solomon because there was nothing all that illustrious about his reign. In fact, his taxation upon that nation was a burden. The nation didn't sing his praises forever and ever. As soon as he died, they threw off the yoke of his son, Rehoboam, and the nation split into two parts. Jesus Christ is the theme of Psalm 45. This is my favorite psalm because it tells of the love of Jesus Christ for his church. I want you to look at those little tiny words over Psalm 45 that are called the superscription. We don't believe they're inspired, but I want you to notice what came to us from the Jewish scribes who kept these psalms for 4,000 years. It says over this psalm, I want the last four words. A song of loves. This is a love song. This is a nuptial song. This is a marriage song, a wedding song for a king and his bride. Psalm 45 is a love song. You are loved, brethren, because I'm going to show you that you are the bride that is in this precious psalm. Use this psalm as a gauge of your soul. Use this psalm as a sample of honeycomb. This should be sweet to your taste because it's good matter. This is marrow. You ought to delight in it. The Lord Jesus Christ and his love for us. My heart is indicting a good matter. Dictation theory of inspiration. We believe that God inspired men's hearts to have the very words that they were to speak and to write down, and they wrote them down for us so that we have the very words of God in our Bible. We don't have men's ideas about the Word of God. We have the very words of God, and David here admits it, or the psalmist, whoever he might be, although who could write a psalm like this? Any man could by the inspiration of God, but psalms like this were usually given to David. We don't know that, though, so we don't prove it, and it's irrelevant because it's the words of God. We don't care whether David understood very much of this or not. We, un- we can understand it. I speak of the things which I have made touching the king. He is telling you that my heart was dictating a very important matter, and it was a matter concerning the king, and it's a good matter. You should find this psalm good. If you don't find it good... As I said earlier, there's something wrong with us. And it's easy for there to be something wrong with us. We get caught up in this world. We get caught up in our little lives. And yes, I say that disrespectfully to all of us. 
Our little lives are so unimportant compared to the life that we have waiting for us. And we're to put our affection on that life. Amen. It is far more important than this life. Right. I speak of the things which I have made touching the king. I have written a wedding song, a love song by inspiration, and it is a good matter. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. I'm ready to write fast without thinking because the words are being supplied by another spirit, God's. This is what we believe about the Bible. We're not wondering this morning if we have the Word of God or thinking that this is simply someone's idea of something precious between Solomon and the daughter of Pharaoh or just a lesson lesson or just poetry to be sung by the church choir. This is a lesson, a love song for you and me to understand Jesus Christ's love for us, and I hope that you will love it and love the Savior that's presented in it. We read of the Lord Jesus Christ as we come to the second verse. Thou art fairer than the children of men. I hope that I wouldn't have to spend any time describing the fairness of the Lord Jesus Christ. In nature is He our superior. He is God in His divine nature. And in His human nature, is He a descendant of Adam? No. He is without sin because He was conceived from the womb of a virgin without being polluted and corrupted by the seed of a man. In his human nature and in his divine nature, he is fairer than the children of men. How about his character? Is his loyalty superior to those of men, to that of men? Amen. Is his love greater? Amen. Faithfulness, right. kindness, generosity, Amen. all the, the graciousness, which we're just about to read, it's superior to any of the sons of men. The Lord Jesus Christ is the greatest lover, and He's the lover of our souls. And He rescued us while we were His enemies. Incredible story. Incredible. I'm limited to language, and I'm limited to my lips and my tongue, which are so impotent. But by God's power, I hope that you'll be moved a little by thinking of what Jesus Christ is and has done for us. Grace is poured in to thy lips. Did Jesus Christ always speak graciously? Amen. Graciously dealing with Peter before and after his denial. Jesus Christ dealing graciously with Mary and the wicked sinning women that would come and anoint his feet and he would say, Thy sins be forgiven thee. How about in Nazareth in Luke chapter 4 where it says, He went into a synagogue at the commencement of his ministry. He went into the synagogue and stood up for to read. And he was only known at that point as a carpenter's son. And he stood up and he turned that book, that parchment, that scroll to Isaiah 61. And he read the first few verses. And he sat down and he said, This day these words are fulfilled in your ears. And do you know what the Bible tells us by Luke's testimony? It said that all the people that were in presence wondered at the gracious words that came out of his lips. Amen. He was the fulfillment of the Old Testament, and he sat down, and he simply said, This day these words are fulfilled in your midst. Grace is poured into thy lips. Graciousness is one of the most desirable traits of a man or a woman. Graciousness is what we mean when we don't understand the word or know its definition, and we say, They are just a wonderful person. They are such a lovely person. That's a gracious person. They're always 
gracious in their speech, speech and gracious in their dealings, condescending, not in the sense that we use that word, but descending to be with someone, benevolent, kind, gentle, courteous, forgiving, agreeable, gracious. Grace is poured into thy lips. Jesus is fairer than any by his graciousness. Right. You will love being in his presence. And you should already know his presence now. He is the most gracious Lord. Therefore God hath blessed thee forever. God has blessed the Lord Jesus Christ forever. He's fairer in nature, fairer in character, fairer in glory. You want to compare the Lord Jesus Christ to one of us? You know, we're so, we're so excited when someone is able to jump 29 feet in the long jump. What an accomplishment. How about the glory of Christ? He made the worlds. Amen. He upholds all things by the word of his power. When John, who knew him intimately, saw him in Revelation chapter 1, it says that he shone above the brightness of the sun. That's glorious. That looks better than someone that's put a little oil on their face and has a good-looking face. That's better. He's fairer than all. And God has blessed him forever. Verse 3, Gird thy sword upon thy thigh, O most mighty, with thy glory and thy majesty. Here we have a picture. This is a song. This is a, this is a psalm. This is an Old Testament figurative picture of the Lord Jesus Christ putting on a sword. Now take this glorious image that's been presented, fairer than the sons of men. Grace is poured into his lips, blessed by God forever, and he puts a sword on. Gird thy sword upon thy thigh, O most mighty, with thy glory and thy majesty. Brethren, our Lord Jesus Christ came into this world and he did lay in a manger. Our Lord Jesus Christ came into this world and was subject to two human parents named Joseph and Mary. Our Lord Jesus Christ did hang on the cross of Calvary and was subject to abuse of all those around that cross. But he is no longer in a manger, and he is no longer subject to two parents, and he is no longer subject to the Jews and the Romans. He has put on his sword when he rose up to the right hand of God, and he is the conquering Lord of heaven and earth. He has been put at the pinnacle of power of this universe far above all principalities and powers, Satan, all of his demons, and every human authority that has ever existed, Jesus Christ is far above them all. That is how high he is, because at his resurrection he was given a sword and a rod of iron and a scepter to rule the nations with a rod of iron, and he's dashed them in pieces, and he has sent his gospel into all corners of the earth so that his people can be called forth and told this message. Right. This is the Lord Jesus Christ being presented as the conquering prince. Oh, the apostles had such a message to be able to give to Israel when they came. Those apostles stood up on that day of Pentecost and Peter was no longer timid. Peter no longer ran from a little handmaid. Peter stood up on that day with the power of the Holy Ghost and he said, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom ye have crucified both Lord and Christ. Right. Now, how's that for a different spirit Amen. from the man who couldn't take the question, aren't thou also of Galilee? 
Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly God hath made that same Jesus, the one that was in a manger, the one that was subject to parents, and the one that hung on the cross and suffered the abuse that I mentioned last Sunday from Psalm 22. He's Lord and Christ, and his sword is upon his thigh. And brethren, those people as they crucified him said, screaming out, wanting Barabbas released to them instead of Jesus, they said, let his blood be on us and on our children. Well, once that king received his sword, what happened? Their blood was upon them and upon their children because he came back in power and great glory in 70 AD by using the Roman armies as his simple tool to destroy the nation of Israel and wipe their city out and level it to the ground and destroy all his enemies. Gird thy sword upon thy thigh, O most mighty, with thy glory and thy majesty. Many of our brethren in the faith have given their lives for the last 2,000 years under the hands of what is called the beast in Revelation chapter 19, which is that revived Roman Empire under the dominion of the popes in which they put so many of our brethren to death. Our Lord Jesus Christ has subdued the power of that enemy. That's why we live and worship in such freedom. And he shall finally and totally vanquish that enemy of the true church of Jesus Christ at his second coming. His sword is on his thigh. He has destroyed all the enemies. O most mighty with thy glory and thy majesty. And see, we saw him in his glory and his majesty in Revelation 19. He was on a white horse. The sword there was going forth out of his mouth. And with it, he destroyed how many of his enemies? All of them. And he trampled them under his feet. We come to the fourth verse. It says, In thy majesty, ride prosperously. In thy majesty, ride prosperously. Be successful in your endeavors. Based on several characteristics of our Lord Jesus Christ, there have been great conquerors. Genghis Khan was a great conqueror, but he didn't have any of these characteristics. Our Lord Jesus Christ conquered and rode forth prosperously because of truth and meekness and righteousness. He said, I am the truth in John chapter 14. He spoke the truth. Listen to these words when Pilate confronted him, an ignorant Roman about the truth. John chapter 18, I'll read it to you in verse 37. Pilate therefore said unto him, Art thou a king then? Art thou a king then? Jesus answered, Thou sayest that I am a king. To this end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Every one that is of the truth heareth my voice. And Pilate said, What is truth? What ignorance? All the answers were right there in front of him. I came to bear witness of the truth, and yes, I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I came into the world. He is the king with a kingdom based in truth. Didn't we read in Revelation 19 and verse 11 that he had a name that was called the faithful and true witness? Right. How many have witnessed deceit? There was no deceit nor guile ever found in his mouth. Can you think of a benevolent king like this? that always speaks the truth, faithful and true witness, with no guile or deceit in his mouth. He was prosperous because of truth. All earthly monarchs have some measure of lies and deceit in their kingdom, but none in the kingdom of Christ or in his reign as our king. It also says that he would ride forth prosperously in meekness. 
all the glory in the universe, but Jesus Christ came into this world meekly. Meekly. He went as a lamb to the slaughter. Meekness. When he would perform a miracle, haven't you read in the Gospels, he would heal someone, for instance, Jairus' daughter. That 12-year-old daughter is raised from a deathbed. She's dead. She's raised, and he tells the parents to give her something to eat. And then he tells them, don't tell anyone about this miracle. Well, what did Jairus want to do? What did anyone want to do? They wanted to tell everyone of what Jesus Christ had done for them. But he was meek. He was not engaged in self-promotion at all. Because the great vindication of him would not be his miracles, but his last miracle, the resurrection from the dead. He said, you want a sign that I'm the Son of God, even though he had already performed 13,000 miracles? You want a sign that I'm the Son of God? I'll give you one. As Jonah was in the belly of the earth three days and three nights, in the belly of the whale three days and three nights, I'll be in the belly of the earth three days and three nights. Now, when you can prophesy your death and your resurrection with the proper time frame, that's pretty good. Amen. And that's what our Lord Jesus Christ did. But while he was here on this earth, he was meek. He did not promote himself. He did not raise his voice in the street. He went forth in righteousness. Our Lord Jesus Christ is righteous. All that he ever did was right. He said of himself that I always do those things that please my father. And what did his father say of him? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. He always did what is right. What a king. You know, David on his deathbed had some other inspired words. They're in 2 Samuel 23. It says, David was given by inspiration. He that ruleth over men must be just, ruling in the fear of the Lord. Now, that was not a word of advice to Solomon. That was a word of prophecy about Jesus Christ because the next words are these. Although my house be not so with God, David hadn't ruled in righteousness, and nor would his sons. Yet God hath made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and sure, and this is all my salvation. That description of a perfect ruler, which David did not have naturally coming from his loins, would come by prophecy and God's work in the person of Jesus Christ. Because he did rule in justice and the fear of the Lord. Perfectly. And he prospered as a conquering prince, putting on his sword, defeating all of his enemies. He is our Lord. And he reigns at the right hand of God at this hour, dashing the nations in pieces, and is far above all principality and power, and he is most successful, and he has prospered primarily from this text because of the truth and meekness and righteousness of his reign. His reign is perfect. Thine arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies, whereby the people fall under thee. He defeats all his enemies. And we see that in Revelation 19, where their torment, the smoke of their torment comes up before his throne forever and ever. His arrows, his sword, his weapons. He is successful in vanquishing all of his enemies. And brethren, we were his enemies. We were his enemies. But instead of destroying us and vanquishing us and putting us under his feet as his enemies, he has saved us. But God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were 
Yet sinners Christ died for us. When we were without strength, he died for us. Yea, even when we were his enemies hating him, he died for us. All of it in Romans chapter 5. He didn't defeat us except by changing our wills and giving us a new nature that we would want to be his and make us fit for him. But he has destroyed all of his enemies. And so we have in this song, we come to verses 6 and 7 where there is a declaration at his coronation of exactly who is the Lord Jesus Christ. Who is he? The Pharisees wanted to know who he was. Jesus once asked his apostles, Whom do men say that I the Son of Man am? Do you want to know who he is? Here it is. Psalm 45 and verse 6. Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. Here, the Lord Jesus Christ is addressed as God. We know that Psalm 45 is about the Lord Jesus Christ primarily because of these two verses. Thy throne, O God. That was never said of Solomon or any other man. This is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. This is what we believe. God was manifest in the flesh. God came and dwelt among men. Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. Now I want you to look at those words very, very carefully right now while I read to you from a couple modern versions as to what they do to a precious proof of the deity of Jesus Christ. Now look closely at the first clause of Psalm 45 and verse 6 while I read it to you from a couple of other versions. God is your throne forever. Now is that saying the same thing? When we have the words, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever, we learn two things. The person being addressed is God. The person being addressed has a throne that will last for eternity. Now what does this tell us? God is your throne forever. Does it tell us that the person being addressed is God? Or does it imply that the person being addressed is not God, but God will be his throne? Isn't that sickening? How about your divine throne endures forever and ever? That's another version. Your divine throne. Oh, no. Oh, no, brethren. We have here the Lord Jesus Christ, a declaration being made from him at his exaltation at the right hand of God. Thy throne. This is when he was given his throne. This is in prophecy. He, he arose to the right hand of God the Father. Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of thy kingdom is a right scepter. Kings had a wand or a stick in their hands that was usually gold and very jeweled. And it, was a, it signified royal power and kingly authority. And a king would raise it or lower it to, sing, to signal what he was doing. Remember, I mentioned already earlier this morning, Queen Esther wanted to come in and see her husband, King Ahasuerus, but she wanted prayers made for three days and three nights before she went in there because she said, the king hasn't called me for a month. If I go in there and he doesn't raise his scepter, it's curtains for me. So they prayed for three days and three nights, but when she appeared at that back door, King Ahasuerus raised his scepter. The scepter is a symbol of kingly authority, and the kingly authority of our Lord Jesus Christ is righteousness. All that he does is perfectly right, holy, and just. 
in his ways. As a king, which verses 2 through 7 are presenting him as king and God, he is perfectly righteous. And that scepter of his is something that had been prophesied for a long time. Jacob, when he laid in his deathbed and his son stood around that deathbed, he worked his way down to son number four, Judah, and he said, the scepter shall not depart from Judah until Shiloh come. This is the Lord Jesus Christ who came from the tribe of Judah, both perceived to be so by Joseph and also biologically by Mary. He was from Joseph twice over legally and biologically. He was the scepter of the tribe of Judah that would reign forever and ever in righteousness, the Lord Jesus Christ, our King. We come to verse 7. Did you know that these verses are quoted in the New Testament by Paul? Hebrews chapter 1, verses 6 and 7 are both quoted in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, where the Apostle Paul is presenting the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ as being a far superior person to any of the angels. Hebrews chapter 1 is Jesus is superior to angels as he deals with the Hebrews. Right. Amen. Thou lovest righteousness and hatest wickedness. Therefore, God, thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. Do you know that in John chapter 3 and verse 34, we're told that Jesus Christ was given the Holy Spirit without measure. Amen. Without measure. Jesus Christ is a man, and he is God. And we must keep both before us, always. As God, he didn't need the Spirit. As man, he needed the Spirit. And as man, he received the Spirit without measure. He is an incredible Savior. And he is our Lord and our husband. Every man in here wants his wife to be a submissive, loyal, faithful, loving wife. Are we all just as willing to be a faithful, loving, loyal, and submissive wife ourselves to the Lord that is our husband? Thou lovest righteousness and hated and hatest iniquity. You know, to love righteousness is to hate iniquity because you can't love them both. The Lord Jesus himself said you can't serve two masters. You're going to love the one and hate the other. You have to love one thing and hate its opposite. And so it is with Jesus Christ. He hated all iniquity. We come over and read and see him, read him, speaking to the churches of Asia, and it says, Thou hast among thee the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Now, that's not popular language today. But the Lord Jesus Christ said that the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, a doctrine, he hated false doctrine. Now, that's a Savior we can love, isn't it? He loved true doctrine. He hated false doctrine. He loved righteousness. He hated wickedness. That is our Lord and our Savior. And God has anointed him with the oil of gladness above his fellows at his baptism. Brethren, he didn't come up speaking in tongues. At his baptism, he came up with the Holy Ghost in the form of a dove descending on his head and the thundering voice from God saying, This is my beloved Son. He was given the Spirit without measure. And so we see the Lord Jesus Christ as our King and our Lord. I am sorry that you have never seen a King to know what I'm talking about, that you've never seen a Lord. But I'm trying to tell you that when you meet him, you will not have to think about following the proper rules of decorum because you will fall at his feet as dead. Because the men that knew him intimately, when they saw him glorified, they fell at his feet as dead. 
And so we've had presented to us that we have a king and a Lord. We were created by God, so we're his creatures and we owe him our lives. He has sent his son Jesus Christ to be our king, and so we owe him as his subjects. We are the citizens of his kingdom, and so we owe him our lives. But now we come to a break. After verse 7, where we've had Jesus presented as our king and our Lord in his kingdom, we now have him presented as our lover. In verse 8, it goes from having a sword on his thigh and arrows piercing his enemies and him being addressed as God to these words. All thy garments smell of myrrh and aloes and cassia. Now, if you think that men went to battle all perfumed up to destroy their enemies, you're wrong. I want to show you where these spices come from and what they indicate. This is a king that has vanquished all his foes. All the enemies are put under his feet. He is coming home. He is coming home to his palace. He has put on his bedchamber garments, and he is waiting for his bride to consummate a marriage to a beautiful woman that he greatly desires, which is us, his saints, and his church. It is a precious love song. All thy garments smell of myrrh and aloes and cassia. Cassia, by the way, is a form of cinnamon. Just to help you out with that word, since we don't use it any longer or very often, turn to Pro- uh, if, for those of you who want to flip, hold your fingers at Psalm 45 and look at Proverbs chapter 7. Proverbs chapter 7. This is a strange woman. And that's not what we're looking at, the fact that she's a strange woman. We're looking at what a strange woman does to prepare her bed for intimate relations. Proverbs chapter 7 and verse 17, I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. That's Proverbs chapter 7. Look at Song of Solomon chapter 4. Song of Solomon 4. You say they really perfume their beds? Yes. <laughs> Quite advanced, weren't they, over our dull society? Your bedroom? Well, good. You're catching up. That's good. We're making progress. You know, these people weren't cavemen chasing rabbits down with sticks. They perfumed their beds. Song of Solomon chapter 4 and verse 11. Well, let's just cut to the chase. Let's come to verse 14. We've got a bunch of spices listed. Spikenard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon with all trees of frankincense, myrrh and aloes with all the chief spices. There are the spices used for intimate relations in a bedroom or in a bed or in garments of lovemaking. Back to Proverbs, back to Psalm 45. Back to Psalm 45. Here is our prince, after victory, delighting in clothing of peace and pleasure to be with his bride. I want you to love this psalm. We have a lover. And this is word pictures for us that are beautiful of Jesus Christ wanting to be with his bride. All thy garments smell of myrrh and aloes and cassia out of the ivory palaces. He is, he is home in his palace, and the palaces, there's plural here, around him have things coming out of them or people coming out of them out of the ivory palaces whereby they have made thee glad. All of his attendants 
and servants are flowing out of his palaces to make him glad after his successful conquest away destroying all of his enemies, God's enemies, and our enemies. Right. And brethren, what enemies did he destroy? Was it just the Jews in 70 AD? Was it the Romans a couple hundred years later? Sin, Satan, and death. Sin, Satan, and death. And the Lord Jesus Christ has now entered into His glory. He defeated death. You know, we sing that song, Up from the Grave He Arose. It says, He tore the bars away. Amen. Prophesy your death resurrection with the proper time frame. That's our Lord Jesus Christ. He destroyed death. Oh, death, where is thy sting? That's a question of mockery. Oh, grave, where is thy victory? There is no longer a victory there because Jesus Christ defeated it. And brethren, when you're in that hospital bed and that little oxygen hose is at your nose, if you want me around, you're going to have to listen to stuff like this. Amen. Right. I don't have good bedside manners. I talk too loud. But I'm going to tell you that Jesus Christ has already defeated what you're looking at. Amen. And that you should want to get through to that other side because He's there waiting for you. And you're going to leave behind this horrible body that we have that destroys us physically and spiritually by dragging us down with a sin that is filled with that it is filled with. Amen. He has defeated all his enemies, and he's now entered into his glory, and he is sitting on his throne, and he's waiting for his bride to be brought to him. Forget Mariah Carey; she doesn't know anything about love. Forget Olivia Newton John; she doesn't know anything about love. I'm telling you about love right now. And it's in Psalm 45. King's daughters, verse 9, were among thy honorable women. Upon thy right hand did stand the queen in gold of Ophir. Here we have the wedding ceremony. We have the formality of it. The queen is standing in gold at the right hand of our king, of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are this queen. We are this queen. King's daughters were among thy honorable women. All these attendants had come out and welcomed their glorious prince home from a successful conquest. He's entered into his glory. He's put on his garments of marriage. And now we have the queen standing at his right hand. And the queen is said to be standing in gold of Ophir. If you look in your Bibles and look for the word Ophir, you'll find it in several places. It was the purest gold that could be had at this time in the world. No one knows for sure where Ophir was, so I can't help you with the globe. But I can tell you that from Job to Solomon building the temple into the minor prophets, you will find references to Ophir as the purest gold that was available. And so this queen is standing there in a garment of pure gold. And that gold, brethren, is the righteousness with which we've been clothed by the Lord Jesus Christ. He was made sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. We are made beautiful. And the queen is standing there in the purest gold, not our filthy gold, not our righteousness, says, but His. And so the queen stands there. Can you picture this? Can you take this word picture and put it in your mind because the Lord wants you to see the glory and splendor and affection of the king for his bride, but also the beauty of the bride, which we have by his righteousness. Verse 10, hearken. These are now the attendants speaking to the bride. Hearken, O daughter, and consider, and incline thine ear. Forget also thine own people 
and thy father's house. Forget. You know, women are a little homesick sometimes when they get married, especially in days like the Old Testament when many women were became wives by arranged marriages. That's why God's law said there needed to be one year that a husband would stay at home and cheer up the wife which he had taken. Because in arranged marriages, sometimes that poor woman needed a little cheering up when she opened her eyes and saw what daddy had got her. Yes, a year to cheer her up. And so we have the attendants encouraging this woman, this, this bride, encouraging her, hearken, O daughter, and consider and incline thine ear. Forget also thine own people in thy father's house. Don't be thinking about how comfortable you were back at home and that you're a little homesick. Forget it all. You're fine. You're beautiful. He's going to love you because every woman that was in an arranged marriage had to wonder, what's he going to think when he opens his eyes? And so she's being encouraged that everything is going to be fine. And she can forget her ancestors. She can forget where she came from. And this is in the 10th verse. And do you know what the Lord Jesus Christ tells us when he came to earth? He told us that if we cannot learn to hate father and mother and brother and sister and son and daughter and wife and our own life also, we cannot be his disciple. Mm -hmm. He wants us to forget all those relationships and set our affection chiefly on him. And so we have the same lesson taught us in the New Testament as we see the scriptural gospel fulfillment of this encouragement. One time a man came to Jesus And Jesus said, are you going to follow me? And the man said, well, I need to bury someone back at home. And Jesus said, let the dead bury their dead, but come thou, follow me. And so we see here in picture form the gospel presentation to sinners that forget all of this world's relationships and affections and love your Lord. In the 11th verse, so shall the king greatly desire thy beauty. Every woman, when she's married, there's some timidity that first day, that first night, that first week. There's some fear. There's some apprehension. But look look what the encouragement is for us in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. We, we, We should be asking ourselves, how can I ever be there? You know, the righteous, when they appear in Matthew chapter 25, say, Lord, we've never done anything worthy to be here. Amen. But she's in pure gold. And do you know what it says in encouragement to us? So shall the king greatly desire thy beauty. That is too good to be true. Amen. We have no beauty. The Bible says that the poison of asps is under our lips. The Bible says that we're corrupt through and through. But he's made us beautiful. So shall the king greatly desire thy beauty. He has made us beautiful. Hold your fingers and let me read, or just listen to me and I'll read to you from Ephesians 5. Are you truly beautiful? Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. Oh, it sounds like we're dressing someone up, doesn't it? Sounds like we're cleaning someone up. Christ cleaning up the church with the sanctifying and cleansing it with the washing of water by the word that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. 
That is what the Lord Jesus Christ did for us. Do you believe those words in Ephesians 5? I'm showing you the word picture of what happened in Ephesians 5 from Psalm 45. Jesus Christ has given us garments and made us greatly desirable to him. He's clothed us with his righteousness to be his perfect bride. So shall the king greatly desire thy beauty. For he is thy Lord, and worship thou him. Don't think about your relatives. He's going to love your beauty. Forget your family. Love him. He is your Lord. Do all of you men want to be a wife that can call her husband Lord? Oh, you love it when I preach the other way, don't you? Can we take it this way? I can. I want to serve that Lord Jesus Christ. And I would serve him in any way that he would let me serve him. I would love to wash his feet and kiss them with my mouth. Because he is my Lord. Is he your Lord this morning? Do you love him from your heart? This is what David would write. David was quite a king in his own, if this was David writing. He is thy Lord. Worship thou him. Look what it says in verse 12. And the daughter of Tyre shall be there. These are the attendants encouraging the bride. These are her bridesmaids, the virgins, her companions. The daughter of Tyre shall be there with a gift. One of the richest cities of the Gentiles would be there with gifts for the Lord Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 21, the Apostle Paul has crossed the Mediterranean Sea. He's making his way to Jerusalem. At what city did he stop? Tyre, on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. How long did he stay there? Seven days. What did he find there? Saints of the Lord Jesus Christ that gave him gifts and took care of him for seven days. And when he departed from that city, they and their wives and their children accompanied him to the ship. This is just one example of the rich cities of the Gentiles owning Jesus Christ as Lord and the church of Jesus Christ taking care of the church. The daughter of Tyre shall be there with a gift to take care of you. All the rich nations of the earth are going to come to bless the church of Jesus Christ. Even the rich among the people shall entreat thy favor. And the churches of Christ have been protected by benefactors for 2,000 years. They've been hidden away and protected from the enemies of the church of Christ. I want to remind you again, we have tax laws still in our nation, our profane, godless nation. We still have tax laws to benefit preachers of the gospel and the giving to the church of Jesus Christ. Just remember, if you're in a high enough tax bracket, giving to the kingdom of Jesus Christ is matched by Uncle Sam in our nation. Did you know that if you take into account all the tax benefits that are in this congregation, the greatest contributor to the church of Greenville's livelihood is the United States government? No one in this assembly has outgiven the United States government in actual bottom-line financial terms of supporting this church and its ministry. Because it's the accumulated, accumulated tax benefits of all of you. And the only reason I'm chasing that little economic rabbit is to point out to you what it means when it says, the daughter of Tyre, right. enemies of the people of Israel. Gentiles would be there to give gifts to the church of Jesus Christ. The king's daughter is all glorious within. We're back to this beautiful bride. She is all glorious within. And this is not a spiritual statement. 
that she is beautiful and glorious within her soul, which we all are by regeneration, but she is within her bridal chamber, and she is beautiful, adorned to meet the king. The king's daughter is all glorious within. Her clothing is of wrought gold. Did you know that we sing a song often to conclude some services? Now unto him that is able to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding great joy. Jesus Christ is going to present us faultless with exceeding great joy. The king shall greatly desire thy beauty. You are beautiful. You are beautiful. By the grace of God, we have been made beautiful. And we shall be received in that day. You know, so many times we think, am I even one of God's elect? I mean, I haven't done anything in my life. How is God going to, how is Jesus Christ going to look at me? How is God going to look at me? If he, if he accepts me, he's barely going to accept me. So shall the king greatly desire thy beauty. The king's daughter is all glorious within her bridal chamber. Her clothing is of wrought gold. I've told you that that gold is the righteousness of Jesus Christ that has been put upon him, put upon us by his death and his resurrection. Notice now we come to four, verse 14, and here is her nuptial gown. She shall be brought unto the king in raiment of needlework. Go buy some needlework and find out what it costs and what it looks like. She shall be brought to the king in raiment of needlework. She's being brought now from being within her bridal chamber. She's being taken and conveyed by her companions, the virgins, to the king's bedchamber. She shall be brought unto the king in raiment of needlework. The virgins, her companions that follow her, shall be brought unto thee, all rejoicing with her and encouraging her. With gladness and rejoicing shall they be brought. They shall enter into the king's palace, singular. They're entering in to his place, and she is being brought. And if you remember from Revelation 19 that we read earlier this morning, it said they did it with great gladness and singing because it was the marriage supper of the Lamb. There was going to be a marriage and there was going to be a consummation, not in the poor way that you think of the word consummation, but in the spiritual way of Jesus being fully, finally united to his church in which they are one, and this is a great mystery. We'll be one with the Lord Jesus Christ, and he'll greatly desire our beauty. And it's when we are united with him that there shall be one truly made. We will fill the fullness of the Lord Jesus Christ by being his bride with him in heaven. With gladness and rejoicing shall they be brought. They shall enter into the king's palace. All these women conveying along their bride and encouraging her and rejoicing because she's about to become the king's. A final word of encouragement to her from her attendants. Instead of thy fathers shall be thy children. You know what could happen this night? They could say to a woman with an earthly king, you've left your fathers to become his bride, but you're going to have children. And since he's a king, they're all going to be princes, whom thou mayest make princes in all the earth. But brethren, look at the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, 120 on the day of Pentecost. It forsook its fathers. It had to leave the nation of Israel, depart out of the temple, worship no more in the synagogues. Did God bless it with any children? 
There are so many passages I could read to you. I'm way out of time. I'm not going to read them to you. They're in the outline. I'll share them with you anytime you want to read them. They're beautiful. The church of Jesus Christ grew and multiplied, and the Bible says that though it started as a seed of a mustard tree, it grew and filled the earth, the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we are some of those children of that kingdom. We are part of the bride of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verses 2 through 7 described Jesus as our Lord. Verses 8 through 16 described Jesus Christ as our lover, greatly desiring our beauty, and he will receive us. And he has clothed us with needlework, raiment of needlework to be brought unto him for the final consummation of his love for us, and we shall be forever with him, able to love and serve him as Lord and our husband. And so the psalmist after presenting him as Lord and lover, says, I will make thy name to be remembered in all generations. What I wanted to do this day was to cause you to remember that Jesus Christ is our Lord and our husband. And when this life is over with all of its vain and foolish and vexing distractions, we shall be united to him in heaven in a glorious relationship that will last forever, the, the total nature of which I cannot describe to you except that you're going to be without any pain, sin, sorrow, sadness, full of joy, beauty, and incorruptible body to love him and to serve him forever and ever, one with the Lord Jesus Christ, so much so one with him that it says that our inheritance includes God himself. And God shall be our God and we shall be his people, the bride of his son, Jesus Christ. And brethren, I hope that in some little way, You as the people, the last clause of verse 17, want to praise him forever and ever.